Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Every week, we talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of human behavior by using a behavioral science lens. When we think about what gets us through each day, what helps us find our groove, confidence seems like it's an important part of that equation. It makes sense. We are more likely to take a risk if we feel confident. Without a doubt, confidence is good. Our guest in this episode suggests that confidence is built on the combination of certainty and control. This idea that certainty and control are foundational to confidence is an interesting idea. And it's a bit of a contrast to what Kahneman and Tversky wrote about when they considered the problem of judgment under uncertainty. Many of the decisions we make on a daily basis are made in situations where we're not actually certain and not actually in control. Maybe our perception is reality, though. Our guest in this episode is Peter Atwater. He is the author of The Confidence Map and is known for coining the K-shaped recovery, which is an economic term used by political and economic leaders in the U.S. and the U.K. Peter is an adjunct professor of economics at Williams and Mary University and the president of Financial Insights, a consulting firm that advises global policymakers on how social mood affects decision making, the economy and the markets. In our conversation, we explore Peter's idea of how confidence contributes to innovation, creativity and to public relations. And we think that there are some important takeaways, like what makes confidence different from self-esteem? Hmm. That is good. So with that, Groovers, we hope you sit back with a two-finger pour of your favorite blend of certainty and control and enjoy our conversation with Peter Atwater. Peter Atwater, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And we have to know, have to have to know right away, coffee or tea? Coffee. Ooh. Oh, love that. Fantastic. <laughs> it's morning. Yes. It's morning. Coffee. It's morning. That that is a big piece. I used to be a tea drinker, but I'm I've switched to coffee. I don't know if it's a good thing or bad. But anyway, um, second speed round question here. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite athlete? Musician. Musician. You've just uh endeared yourself to Tim. So All right. <laughs> uh, anyone come to mind just out of curiosity? Oh, if he were still alive, it would be someone like Stephen Sondheim. Oh, Sondheim. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did you write? I used a quote from his book, uh, from uh, one of his plays to start out my book. Yeah. 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 How how did you write Send in the Clowns would be one of my questions to ask Mm. at dinner. You know, how did you you write it? Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Third speed round question. Would you rather take a roller coaster or teach your children to drive? Those are very similar experiences in my life. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of got, we gathered that. We gathered that you probably yeah. weren't uh, excited about either of them. <laughs> yeah, I actually, those, those are both events that, um, to use a phrase from my book, put me in the passenger seat. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. We'll I, get I to have that certainty, too. but no control. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not a fan of either. All right. Well, okay. we can. We, you don't have to choose that. You can say, I, I decline for both of them. We've had some people, <laughs> we often ask the coffee tea, and some have got neither. I don't drink either of those. So there, you can say neither roller coaster nor teaching your children to drive. All right. Last speed round question, Peter. 
is being confident a function of how loud we speak and whether we stand uh, like Wonder Woman, or is it something else? No, I think of that as confidence theater. That's our. That's our. That's our. The the role we play on stage, you know, in meetings. That that's that's what we think the audience wants. I don't think it's either. Uh, I I think that confidence is probably more cognitive than it is um, anything else. And it's as I talk about in my book, it's about our feelings of certainty and control. We, we need both of those to feel confident. So we are, we're talking about the confidence map, charting a path from chaos to clarity. What is, let's get a little bit deeper into this. What is confidence? Confidence is how we see ourselves faring in the future, which is a lot of words strung together that need to be pulled apart. First of all, it's inherently forward-looking. Mm. When I say I'm confident, I'm not talking about the present. I'm actually talking about what I see ahead. And here it's all imagination because the future is something we have to create a picture of. It's inherently uncertain. And so we need to have a sense of predictability that we, we have an idea what's around the corner. And that's where certainty comes into play. But that's not enough. We also need to know that we're going to be okay, that we are prepared that we have an ability to control the outcome, that we're not sort of the beneficiary of vic- or victim of what others might do, that, that we have agency. And so those two have to come together in order for us to feel confident. And what's the payoff? What, what's, what's the big bonus if, we, if those two things align? There, there are a couple of bonuses. One is clearly cognitive. Our brain is relaxed. Mm. It's at ease. Uh, cognitive ease and confidence are uh, two words that are interchangeable in my mind, that when we feel confident, our brain is relaxed. And so are we physiologically. So the benefits are enormous in terms of how we think, how we feel. We tend to be happy. Things feel easy. Uh, in the book, I describe it as being in the comfort zone. Yep. Time passes quickly. And, and so that's the, that's the payoff of, of feeling confident. So Peter, when you, when you talk about confidence in this, this level, we're talking about personal confidence here. Is there a difference between, uh, a corporation having confidence or is it similar in nature and, and maybe even from a social perspective, where, where does that fall on this kind of continuum as you're, as you're talking through it? Yeah, so I'm not talking about self-esteem, right. which is how we how we feel about ourselves, and and candidly, I don't think there's anything called self-confidence. I think it's it, there's confidence and there's self-esteem. I did, but but what I'm really thinking about is our relationship with the exterior world, mm. um, and that exists at an individual level, at a group level, and at a societal level. That 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 transcends all of what we do and and we experience it um all of them at once yeah uh, so you know what's happening societally impacts the way we feel and then there are the things that are going on in our own lives yeah yeah that was an interesting part of the book that i i, I found and we can probably dig into that a little bit later but i think before we go there let's let's talk about um the confidence quadrant right this the the map 
basically, as 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 you kind of look at it. Can you describe for our listeners um, what that is and and what are the different quadrants that are there? Sure. So when I talk about confidence, it quickly becomes a word cloud. Mm. It, it, there's a lot of mumbo jumbo, but we can't visualize it. And so it was really important to me in the classroom with my clients to come up with a framework that would enable them to see where they are in terms of their levels of confidence and the fact that we move around, that real life changes those feelings frequently and that we're never really in one place forever. So what I did was to take certainty and control and put them on different axes. So the quadrant has certainty on the the x-axis across the bottom and control in the y-axis going up. And from that, I created this two-by-two image where you have high high certainty and high control in the upper right-hand corner. I call that the comfort zone. In the lower left-hand corner, we have the stress center where we have low certainty and low control. It's where we feel uncertain and powerless. Um, All traumatic events in our lives happen in the lower left corner of of the quadrant. The other two boxes we tend to ignore, but they're really interesting and important. These are environments where we have one, but not both elements needed for, for confidence. You talk about a roller coaster and teaching our kids to drive. That's an environment where we have uncertainty, but no control. If I'm a passenger, I can't grab the wheel. So that's what I call the passenger seat. And we experience those frequently, you know, whether you're in the back of a cab or on an airplane, on an elevator, crossing a bridge. There, there are lots of environments where that's our normal. And what's interesting about that is how we feel in those environments is not consistent. Mm. We can go from feeling very relaxed one moment on a plane to suddenly feeling terrified when there's turbulence. Um, a environment of the of certainty but no control defines a maximum security prison. Mm. So these are, that's a really interesting environment that um, impacts us a lot. Our feelings can quickly pivot. The last box is the upper left-hand corner. I call that the launch pad. That's where we have control, but no certainty. I, I think of that as being a, a rock climber halfway up a mountain. So <laughs> I, I have control, but whether I fall to my death or make it up to the top and safe ground remains to be seen. There's a really to be determined element to that. It's when we pull the lever on a slot machine. Uh, interestingly, all of our financial decisions in life are made in that box from mm. borrowing and lending to investing. I make a choice today, but the outcome is to be determined. When you, when we talk about um, these these boxes, and and thank you for actually giving some specific examples of the behavioral side of it, I think about agency as so often associated with sort of a fundamental psychological pillar of who we are. We tend to have a sense of agency, or we tend to have a, a you know strong agency or, or or lower agency and are there there simply people who are just going to be more comfortable with uh with getting up into the upper right hand quadrant because of their sense of of agency entrepreneurs they will they're that spirit of if i have my hands on 
the wheel, I can navigate uncertainty no matter what happens. They, they love to go from the stress center through the launch pad to the comfort zone. Yeah. Um, it, it's the hero's journey. Yeah. If you if you read mythology, that's the route that we all go. Where we we have to we have to take control of the situation. But not everybody is suited to that. And, and candidly, we're not all suited to it at all times. If you have a burst pipe, you have to, in an instant have to decide: Do I call a plumber and let them take control, or do I take control, rush to Home Depot and get what I need? in the thoughts that I can fix it. So, so different environments, if we're skilled, if we think we are skilled, if we think we're knowledgeable, those will often impact the pathway that we choose. Hmm. So with that, and you talk about the entrepreneurs who go from, you know, that uh, stress center through the launch pad into the comfort zone. Is there a thing of having too much confidence that uh, what happens when we're up in that upper tippy top right hand far <laughs> corner of your two by two boxes? Is there is there some negative aspect of having too much confidence in that? And and can that confidence? I'll, I'll let you answer that, and then I have a follow up question: Is 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 that confidence? Can that be false? In other words, uh, I, I believe that I have control or I believe that I'm certain on things. And that is a false understanding of reality is how it goes. So, yeah. So I, I think we are naturally prone to being overconfident when we believe we have complete control of the situation and we think we know what's coming next. Mm. Again, I go back to the future is inherently unknown. And so we have to be open to that possibility that, that just because we've imagined the outcome doesn't mean that outcome will ultimately prevail. Yeah. And you talked about perception distortion in, in the book. And so is that part of this as well? This ability for us to, you know, distort our perception on that? Yeah. We, and we do it routinely at both extremes. So at, when we're overconfident, we overestimate the certainty and control that we have versus the reality of the situation. And at the other extreme, we woefully underestimate the certainty and control that we have. We, we feel defeated and powerless and everything feels uncertain. And we, we forget that we are as prone to underconfidence as we are to overconfidence. I, I think underconfidence is a huge issue today where people feel worse than they objectively should feel. Interesting. Where, where, where do you draw that from? Where, do, where does that observation come from? You know, if you, you can look in terms of employment data, you know, we have an, an economy where, you know, we're, we have a shortage of workers. So everybody who wants a job should have a job. Um, and historically, that that makes us feel good. Historically, there's a there's a tight connection between, you know, employment and consumer confidence, and that's that's really broken down. And and the measures, you know, economic satisfaction doesn't equal confidence today. And there's there's something else that seems to be bothering us that we can't quite put our fingers on. But I think it's it's shading the way we we look at the future. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. 
You, you bring a lot of behavioral economics into your financial work. We love that, by the way. But tell us a little bit, if you could, about how behavioral economics can help people in some of the financial decision making. So let me let me talk a little bit about behavioral economics and how most behavioral economists focus. If I look at the world of behavioral economics, it tends to focus on the bad choices that we make and the choices that economists view to be somewhat irrational. The, the attention seems to be on, on the bad and the, and the, the outliers. You know, those, those are interesting. Those, those make for great storytelling. What I've tried to do in this book is to say, let's step back and just look at what do we do? You know, if, if we're going to try to give people advice, the first thing we need to do is understand how are they making decisions naturally? And to look at just the way life moves them around and the way that changes how they think, what their preferences are. Because if I can do that, then I can start to understand their economic decision-making, their political decision-making, their social and cultural decision-making. And if I'm trying to help people to make better choices, understanding our, our inherent behavior, good and bad, is, is vital. So how does that play out in terms of the financial decisions that, that you've asked about? We make all those decisions in the upper left-hand corner. And here we have to imagine the future. I wouldn't lend you money if I didn't think you could pay it back. What we need to watch out for is when we become certain of an outcome, good and bad. Mm. The more certain we are of the outcome, the more that's going to drive our choice. So all of our financial decisions are outcome imagined as far as their basis. And so if I assign an extremely high probability, chances are I'm deluding myself. And I, I like to say, if you think it's going to, nobody's, you know, you're going to lose all your money or you're going to make a million dollars both of those are likely to be very wrong. Mm. So pull back, take less risk when you are more certain of the outcome. And that's a, that's a very counterintuitive behavior, but it's critical. Yeah. And it, it prevents you from, from making those gross missteps that we do when we're overconfident and we're underconfident. We, 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 will, we will pull back at the top of the market and we'll be more inclined to jump in at the bottom. Yeah, it's interesting. And I love the counterintuitive aspect because that's one of the things I think behavioral science, behavioral economics highlights for some things. We, we intuitively think something and the research shows, oh, that's not necessarily how it works. And what you're saying is that the same element of that around our confidence, high or low in the financial decision making, making that counterintuitive piece. And it also reminds me, we've we've interviewed Annie Duke a, a number of times in the way that she talks about thinking, thinking in bets and this idea that how how much certainty you have about you think about this, but adjust that. Make sure that you're always looking. I'm 80% sure. Well, new information coming in, maybe now I'm 70% sure. And I think we often get locked into our initial analysis. Would you find that to be the case? Um, or, or am I kind of overstepping my, my intuition there? <laughs> no, I, I think we 
we frequently fall into that, particularly in groups. Mm. I, I love what Annie does, and I love the idea of making changes in our assessment. We can do that individually if we take our time and are very deliberate. It becomes much more difficult with groups because groups, group dynamics require a common denominator that's simple, that's easy, that's fast, that is disinclined to use complex abstract thought. Mm. And so groups easily fall into that dynamic where they overestimate outcomes, good and bad. And to, to avoid that, I, you know, polling individuals before a group meeting is a really powerful way to avoid that groupthink dynamic that develops when we all get together. But we need to consider the outliers. We need to consider those whose opinions feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I also, uh, something that we found intriguing was how confidence can be both an input and an output of decision-making. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the, the things that drives my um, economic brethren nuts is the question of causation. Did mood make us do it or was mood the outcome? And we're not good at, at assessing, did I act or did I react? We're, we're in constant motion and short of extreme events, it's very difficult for us to determine whether our behavior is a reaction to something or simply an ongoing, never-ending process that I describe as sort of story, feeling, action, story, feeling, action. These are all, it's like a, a house of mirrors where <laughs> they're all playing on us simultaneously. And so I, I've given up completely the question of <laughs> uh, which okay. is chicken or egg. I, I just know that at all times, we have equilibrium between how I feel, the stories I tell, and what I do. And if I can just stop, create a, a single frame, and I know your story, then I probably know how you feel and what you're likely to do next. If I know your feelings, I know your stories and actions. If I know what you're doing, I know your feelings and stories. So I, I think it's, it's a fruitless exercise to try to figure out what's leading and what's lagging. Just stop, you know, hit the pause button. And there's plenty of information there from which to, to begin to, to make decisions. And, and yet we have agency. You, you believe mm -hmm. that we have agency. We have the ability to say, no, I'm going to, I am going to choose. I'm not, I'm not just in the muddy slur of the river going downstream, I actually can stand on the, on the shore and say, I want to do this or, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's really helpful at times to hit the pause button so that you can make that agency decision. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a key piece as we talk about that is being able to look at things in a manner that allows us to make that better decision. So to take that pause, to, to be able to say, I understand the story and maybe have a little bit of the what you're doing. And so I can make a, an, an element of saying triangulating that component and saying, all right, here we are. So now I can make an, uh, a much more educated uh, assumption about what's going to happen next and what we what I need to do in order to have that sense of agency. 
One piece in the book that I was really fascinated about was the idea of a horizon preference, right? And if you could talk a little bit about that for our listeners and, and talk about what does it do? What, what does a different horizon? And you talk about me here now versus us everywhere forever thinking. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I quickly figured out that, you know, certain team control made a difference. I could start to see the kinds of decisions we were making, but I was struggling to figure out what's the preference factor? What is mm. it that's causing our choices to change based on how we feel? And if you think about, you know, at the top of a roller coaster, go back to the beginning of our conversation, and you step back and you say, what matters in that moment? You know, before I'm plummeting to my death, what, where is my head? What am I focusing on? And every person, if they pause to stop and think about it, concludes the only thing they're really thinking about is me here now. That when I am on, when I feel vulnerable and, and vulnerability is the opposite of confidence. And I think that is such an important thing to, to appreciate that it's not that we lack confidence. It's that we feel extremely vulnerable. And so vulnerability transforms our preferences because it demands focus. If that bear is outside my tent, the only thing that matters is me and my relationship with that bear. So what that does is that makes self-interest, immediate time proximity, and immediate physical dis distance the things that matter most. And I crave certainty. I crave things that are concrete. It's why, you know, when COVID hit, we rushed to Costco to get all that toilet paper and water and all that. We wanted it right there with us. It's why we, we stuffed cash in our mattress at, at Lowe's and Confidence. That close physical proximity and self-interest is ruling the roost in every choice that we make. And as our confidence begins to grow, and we relax, our focus can expand. You know, we, we begin to consider the interests of others. We start to look around more broadly. We, we start to plan for the future. And so suddenly, the more confident we're becoming, you can see that there's a level of generosity, that there's a sense of abundance, and we'll start to explore, we'll, we'll go well into the future, we'll plan and you know strategically think about what's ahead. And there's a there's a high level of abstraction that comes with this because again, we're having to imagine what's out there. And the the more confident we are, again, our stories mirror our mood, and the more vividly clear our imagination becomes about what's ahead. When confidence is low, we feel like we're in this massive fog storm. When confidence is high, it's a clear sky as far as we can see. I, I think we underappreciate the impact that our visual sense has on so many aspects of our lives. You know, we talk about distant relations. You know, I have a distant cousin. You know, distance is a, is a variable that plays into our lives socially, in time, physically. And that's, that's what horizon preference tries to tie together is how those how our perceptions of that distance change based on how we feel. And that's a great description, Peter. Thank you for that. Uh, 
you at the beginning of that description, you you teed up this idea of vulnerability. Could you spend just a minute on the vulnerability first mindset? Yeah. So we tend to focus when a crisis happens on the source of the crisis, the problem. You know, the 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 plane that crashed, the building that fell down, the you know the the well that burst. And, and it seems natural to do that, and, right? And, yeah. and obvious. And and. Yeah. If I look at our response, our response is always, what was the problem? Fix it. And that's useful, but that's not complete because we forget that what really defines a crisis, again, all traumatic events, isn't the source of the problem. It's the feelings that arise from the problem. It's mm. the, it, what, what makes something a crisis is the powerlessness and uncertainty we feel. And so, those are the root of our problem. I, I say to doctors a lot, the difference between curing and healing a patient is curing solves the problem, healing the patients, he healing the patient restores their confidence. It gives them certainty and control in their lives again. And so if you're dealing in a crisis environment, you have to remember that it's the vulnerability that matters most. The crisis won't be over until people's certainty and control is restored. And emergency room doctors do this really well. And, and it changes the way they share information and they, their focus on the present as opposed to the past or the future. It being focused on the vulnerability creates a series of processes and steps you can take to in really improve the way you deal with crises in your own life and, and in the lives of others. So you, you've you talked of, on other podcasts and other places, as well as in the book, about Boeing's response to the 737 MAX accident. Is that is similar to what you're talking about here, how they responded? And could they have handled that differently as, as you're looking at that? Yeah, so for Boeing, they immediately, I mean, their, their response to the first jet was pilot error, yeah, um, which is their knee-jerk reaction to everything. But when the second plane went down, the problem was mechanical, and they their entire focus was we have to fix the plane. They completely ignored the fact that their real problem was the vulnerability that passengers, airlines, regulators were all feeling. It was intense. And it was the vulnerability that grounded the planes. It was those feelings, not the mechanical issue. It was, we don't know what's certain. We feel powerless until you can restore the way we feel. Those planes can't go back in the air. And I thought Boeing did a dreadful job of thinking in terms of vulnerability first. And to be honest, they're not alone. Most corporations tend to avoid thinking about the vulnerability. To, to acknowledge it feels like they're opening up a can of worms and exposing themselves to much greater litigation and, and expense and everything else. And, and you look at the cost of what Boeing paid, I, I would beg the question, does ignoring it cost you even more? Yeah. I, I and think if you look, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, I was gonna, uh, tap into that because I do think in the work that, that both Tim and I have done with organizations, uh, there is a kind of avoidance of the emotions, of the feelings. And 
look, I can fix this mechanical piece. I can fix this, you know, whatever blurb in, in this, but it doesn't address the larger picture either with employees or with customers in how they're feeling about said uh, incident or whatever. And I fully agree with that. And I think there's a there's a big miss in most organizations. To your point, you know, it's like, well, we can fix this. It'll cost X. Well, or we don't have to fix it because there's a cost component that we're going. It's 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 too much ROI, but we don't necessarily take in the bigger picture of, as you said, the feelings of confidence, vulnerability, all those other factors, the emotional side of aspects. So, yeah, there's no question there, which I often <laughs> I'm, get on my soapbox, too. So there you go. Sorry. <laughs> but there is a there is a there is a question here, and it uh, has to do with getting away from this crazy world and spending a year on a desert island. Just you, Peter. You just get to spend some time. And with you, you get to take two musical artists. Now, uh, not the actual people. You just get to take their catalog, their musical catalog, everything that they've they've done. What what two musical artists would you take with you? Oh, that's easy. I would I would take Stephen Sondheim's catalog. So that that one that one is easy. Um, and I would take the catalog of, of George Winston. Oh. Um, really? Uh, yeah, um, his music has always been um, an enormous refuge to me. Uh, he changed how I listened to piano music, um, and uh, I think he did a masterful job of painting pictures with sound. Oh. And so um, if I'm on a desert island, uh, I could listen to his his music uh, and Sondheim forever. Well, I, I I couldn't agree more with Sondheim. Uh, di- big catalog, diverse set of music, and the George Winston thing. That's that's kind of an interesting concept. Did you get hooked on George Winston with the Christmas album, like like so many other people did, with you know his his versions of Pachelbel's Canon and that sort of thing? No, I got hooked on it thanks our, in an odd way to to Air France. I went to high school in in France and. And so traveling back to the U.S., they happened to put him as a featured artist <laughs> and started listening. I said, like, this is really interesting. I'd never heard anyone huh. ever play the piano. I think it was Autumn or Winter into Spring. Oh. It was one of his, his earlier albums, and it never heard anybody play the piano that way. Uh, Autumn was a good record as well. Yeah, I, I, I could imagine that. Yeah, Hockey. it's interesting because he does, uh, he evokes, uh, again, talking about emotion, right? And yeah, I loved how you said painting with, with music. And there is that emotional response that you can get from from those pieces so yeah fantastic thank you for that uh and peter thank you for being a guest on behavior groups it's been it's been a, a great conversation we really appreciate it i really appreciate the opportunity Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Peter, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our uncertain and unconfident minds. Oh. <laughs> not not certain and confident. Not, not you and me. We we no, definitely no. <laughs> are are the uncertainty duo. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what do you take away from this, Kurt? What's, what's, what's your, what's the first thing you want to talk about when it comes to grooving? Well, I like this idea of how confidence is an important element in organizations, in 
leadership, in making things happen. It's an important element in getting through life to a certain degree, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I couldn't agree more. And the, the important piece, I think, goes back to the, it goes back to the speed round question, right? Where we asked, oh, I just have to pose like Wonder Woman or whatever that is, oh, right? right? right and right. this idea that, that confidence isn't about self-esteem. Not not the way that Peter talks about it, uh, yeah. that it is this mixture of our our belief around certainty and control. And those elements help in looking at the world and how do we then view the world when we have both, we feel we have both, when we feel we have one or the other or neither. And I think understanding that part and what that level, the different quadrants in that mix that he talks about, how then we make decisions within each of those and how we behave within each of those. It's important to understand. Uh, and knowledge, again, doesn't always change behavior, but at least having the knowledge can help us impact what we do moving forward. I want to get to a couple of examples, uh, maybe talk about some specific things where confidence uh, is apparent, but there might not be certainty uh, in, in any particular situation. Okay. But before I do that, can we just contrast this with, you know, the when we think, when you and I think about behavioral science, so much of it goes back to Kahneman and Tversky, and so much of that is around a foundational assumption that gets made that we make a lot of judgments in uncertain situations. Yeah. And so, and, we, oh, I'm sorry. Well, so we don't have as, so it's our perception is oftentimes that we don't have control or certainty or at least 100%, right? I mean, there's, we can bifurcate on that for a bit as well. Uh, but Peter's argument is that the greater level of control, the greater level of confidence that we're going to have. Mm hmm. And that's a good thing. I mean, that that leads to innovation and, you know, uh, all, all kinds of things in the organization. Yeah. And it, so going back to, to Kahneman and Tversky, the, everything in behavioral science, right, seems to go back to Kahneman. A lot and of it does. Yeah. Right. The, the, so they wrote Judgment Under Uncertainty, Heuristics and Biases back in 1974, Tim. 1974, oh <laughs> and it was published in Science, right? The, so pretty big journal back even then, right? And mm -hmm. one of the pieces that they talk about there is that, um, and I'm quoting here, that people rely on limited number of heuristic principles, which reduce the complex tasks of assessing probabilities and predicting values to simpler judgmental operations, ah. end quote. Uh -huh. This idea that certainty... The, the probability, right, of, of knowing the outcome, we tend to rely on just a few, you know, we have these heuristics. It also goes into biases, the biases that we have yeah. around these. And the combination of that heuristics and these biases means that we aren't very good judges of, of the future. And that certainty, even right. though we may feel certain, isn't necessarily what the outcome will be. And yeah. we feel more or less certain than maybe reality says we should. Now, Peter would argue that certainty and, uh, and control uh, ultimately give way to confidence, which is not just a feeling, mm. though. It's not, it's not just a perception uh, in, in his mind. I just want to make sure that we uh, express that properly. But this is where I, I want to get to some examples. I, when I think about 
someone like Elon Musk starting a company like SpaceX or Tesla, to what degree did he have confidence? And then to what degree was that confidence built on a sense of certainty and a sense of control? Yeah. Now, we're presupposing, and maybe he's a unicorn uh, yeah. in this case, but it just comes to my mind. And, and, and again, I, we, we've talked about this before. Don't like to over-index on like the people that yeah. are just successful, right? The right. survivorship bias. Right. But Steve Jobs is another one. And, and this is an interesting piece. And, I, and forgive me, listeners, if anybody knows the story and I mess it up, please, please uh, let us know. We'll make a, we'll, we'll do an edit thinking of Back. you, Jim Nelson, Back. who always is, is making sure <laughs> yes. that we're keeping oh this in, in place. Fact check us, Jim Fact Nelson. Fact check, yes. check us. Um, yeah. But Steve Jobs uh, had gone to Park, the Palo Alto computer that was done by Xerox. I forget right. what, like, you know, what it was. And they were the first people who had a mouse. They were the first people who had the kind of, uh, you know, the the Windows model that we we know of in computers WYSIWYG. before that. Yeah. They developed a WYSIWYG. What Wizzy you see is what you get. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that whole thing. And one of the things that, that Steve thought he saw there was that the boxes they had were rounded edges. And so he came back to his team and he was like, we need to do all of this stuff, right? With with the Apple that they were creating with the Macintosh, I think it was when they were developing the Macintosh. And so they brought the mouse in, they brought in all this other facts. But one of the things that he brought in was this curved box. They didn't have that. That was a mistake of his memory. And so it was a lot harder to do, but they did it. And they then part of it was they said, well, I guess it's been done already. So therefore, we have to figure out a way to be able to do it. And that was, again, going back to confidence. It's this idea, false confidence of it was been already been done, but they actually did it. So I think that's a really interesting piece as we go through that. It makes this whole discussion very complex yeah. for, for me that because there isn't this very easy and direct line. And as as Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky write that this idea of when we're faced with these difficult and complex tasks, that we end up sort of reverting to simpler judgmental operations. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how my brain's feeling right now. It's like, how do we how do we make sense of this? Because I really like Peter's model. I yeah. really like this idea of having a foundational set of of um, you know assumptions that we're gonna we're gonna use to in order to assess our level of confidence. Well, and I think, but here's the piece, Tim. I think that that matrix that he talks about, this idea of certainty and the x-axis, control and the y, this element of understanding that hey, when we're high on both of those, again, going back to Amos and Tversky, right? It reduces yes that risk, and so we are the loss aversion doesn't kick in because we feel certain and we feel in control. So there's a mm -hmm. reduction in loss aversion there. So we are more likely yeah. yes. to make those decisions, even if it's risky, even if our certainty is based on false premises, we're more likely to make those decisions. And right. that I think is an interesting piece. And, and that gets into this component of that Hey, we're not good judges of certainty. Annie Duke talks about that. Amos and Tversky, talk, uh, Amos and Tversky, <laughs> Amos, <laughs> both Amos and Tversky, both, Amos yes. and Tversky. both uh -huh. Kahneman and Tversky talk about that. Yeah. And, you know, a number of other researchers. But the idea behind that is that maybe that's okay. 
maybe yeah, right. maybe there's a part of this that that false sense of hey i'm going to start this business and i have certainty that my business is going to succeed when in fact we look at base rates and we go yeah yeah you know <laughs> that's yeah, not right, going to happen right, right? but yeah. if without that certainty without that false sense of belief in that we're not going to get things done on, on the corollary to that on the on the bottom left-hand quadrant of of peter's um you know, confidence, map, confidence, right? uncertainty. Yeah. Okay. Right. That idea that we feel um, powerless, that we don't have control, and that we don't have certainty, is also kind of that piece where maybe we're fooling ourselves. There, we have more agency than we think, and there is always, as Annie Duke talks about, right we always have some element even if it's just an estimated guess like if i ask you what's the weight of a cow you would your certainty on that well you might know cuz you know exactly you're an old what farmer, a cow weighs you know? yeah, yeah but all right 896 so, pounds all right so the the thrust of a <laughs> the thrust of a rocket you know to get out of orbit if i asked you that 896 pounds it's <laughs> <laughs> everything answered the, the the meaning of life i 896 pounds. I think I've just I think I've just pulled a Kahneman and Tversky on reducing a complex task to a simpler judgmental operation. Yes. <laughs> but there you go, but you, but you have you have you know that it's more than zero and you know that it's probably less than a billion, right? So you have some limits and that's what Andy right. Duke talks about. So we do have some level of certainty um and we do have some agency or some control. Uh, agreed. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more there, Kurt. Yeah, yeah. And that, there's an archer's mindset there, right? That idea of, hey, if we can just get on the target as opposed to hitting the bullseye, we're probably good. Which we lose sight of all too often. I do. Let me just put it that way. So, okay. All right. Well, I'm confident that that should probably wrap this episode <laughs> up. What say you, Tim? <laughs> Oh, I'm a bit more uncertain, <laughs> but I'm willing to let go and just run with it. <laughs> but but you're not in control anymore, I'm are not, you? Are no. you? Uh, not uh, right. Not at this minute. Not no. <laughs> not right now. You you could you could take over control though and say no. I have this next question I want to ask about the anyway. All right. There's a there was a lot to unpack in this episode. Lots of content. I think that made us think, and hopefully made you groovers think as well. Uh, absolutely. And however you feel about certainty and control, I'm certain that you control your ability to go out and leave us a review, which I hope you do right now. So you Tim, have control. Yes. Yeah, so your yeah. position on this is that you know that groovers have control, but you're not certain that they will do what we're asking them to do. No, oh, I'm 100% on that one. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> well, I have more certainty that they will, that they will oh. go out there and write us a review. Maybe a false sense of certainty there, but... Okay, well, that seems about right for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, Groovers, we hope that you go out this week with certainty and find your groove. <laughs>